Hey, good morning. My name's Ross, and I'm um, one of the pastors here, and we are in uh, Ephesians chapter 5 this morning. We're going to pick back up our study in Ephesians, and this morning, like Tom said, uh, and thank you, Tom, for leading us in communion, it's the marriage passage, and this passage always meets uh, it's probably one of the most controversial passages in Ephesians. And it's controversial because in many ways the language runs so counter our culture. And that's not a new phenomenon. The language has run counter culture since the very beginning. Since these words were written, they were counter what the culture was. And I want to demonstrate that to you in a few minutes. Um, but it is a passage that as the church, I think we can celebrate and we can embrace, and, but we want, to, we want to look hard at it and see what it is that Paul is saying and the context that he's saying it in. And so to begin, I'll, I'll read this, um, read a letter. It's a letter from a, a wife to her husband. And it says this, uh, my darling husband... I want to let you know before you return from your overseas trip that I had a small accident with the truck in the garage when I was coming back from Target. Luckily, not too bad, and I really didn't get hurt at all, so don't worry, I'm okay. And your motorcycle's okay too, so please don't worry too much. As I said, coming home from buying groceries at Target, and when I turned into the driveway, I accidentally pushed on the accelerator instead of the brake. The garage door slightly bent, but the pickup, un, uh, the pickup, fortunately, came to a halt when it bumped into your car. Please don't be mad. I'm really sorry, but I know with your kind-hearted personality, you will find in your heart room to forgive me. You know how much I love you, and I care for you. I can't wait to hold you in my arms again, your loving wife. P.S., I'm attaching a picture for you. Welcome to the Sermon on Marriage. <laughs> Feels a lot like that sometimes. Um, I want you to see something in this context, the way that Paul is going to talk about marriage. And so I want to show you two things before we get fully into the passage. Um, but if you will look with me in chapter 5, verse 22. I want you to, to we're just going to read verse 22, and then I want to show you a couple of things. It says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, we're going to talk about that in a second, but I want you to notice the word um, uh, submit. So, for, uh, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. That's verse 21 or 22. Here's what you need to know about verse 22. The word submit actually isn't in verse 22. It is a word that is borrowed from verse 21. So, if you'll back up to verse 21, uh, in fact, it's up there on the screen, it says this, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, the word submitting there is uh, what we would call a participle. A participle simply means it needs a verb for, for, to, to describe its meaning. It, it's dependent upon, 
and it modifies a verb. And so when you're looking at that and you say, okay, 22 has borrowed submitting from 21. In 21, it's a participle, and it is there to describe and modify a verb. So the question becomes, moving into this passage, what's the verb that is controlling all of this passage? And you have to go all the way back up to chapter 5, verse 18. Let me read it for you. It says this, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but... And then here's your verb. Be filled with the Spirit. The passage on marriage actually begins in chapter 5, verse 18, with the instruction to all of the church, be filled with the Spirit. And then he's going to use a series of participles to describe what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. Those are... We address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord. We just did all that. That's what we've been doing since we got here this morning. Another, giving thanks always for everything. This is another sign of what it is to be filled with the Spirit in the name of the Lord Jesus and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. It is from here that Paul's going to take that participle submitting, which is an overflow of being filled with the Spirit, and he's going to give us three examples in the midst of the life of the church. The first of those is marriage. The second of those is family, and specifically parenting. And the third is going to be um, the second part of the first of chapter 6, and it's going to be what, what, how does that look, submitting to one another in the context of, of our working relationships? What does it look like submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ in our marriage, in our homes with our children, and in the midst of our workplace where we spend time during the day and have relationships as employers and employees? And so it's with that context that I want you to know that this idea of a marriage, a biblical marriage, a Christian marriage, is not something that can happen apart from being filled with the Spirit. Meaning, to be under the control and the influence of the Spirit. It didn't mean we said last, two weeks ago, it's not getting more of the Spirit, it's the Spirit getting more of you. And it's the awareness of our need for the Spirit's control in our life. And that's combined with this willingness on our part to follow Christ. And what we discover is this, it's a lifelong process of conscience, conscious dependence upon the power of God's Spirit in our life. And the goal is submitting, which means it's, it's displacing the selfishness and the, and the conceit and the competition that so naturally comes to us. And the question becomes, where did this selfishness and conceit and competition originate? So I, I briefly want to give you a little backstory because what Paul is doing is he's saying, listen, marriage is broken. But it, all, it wasn't always meant to be broken. In fact, marriage is God's design 
Sin entered the world, broke marriage. And here in chapter 5, what he's saying is, and, and God has made a way through Jesus to redeem marriage. See, the first thing to realize is that marriage is God's design. And if you had your Bibles, you could go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, and you find where God says, listen, I'm going to make. He's got man. He's in the midst of the garden. He's created all the animal kingdom and all the fish in the sea. And there's man, and he's standing there kind of above all the creation. He's there created to, to have dominion and to reign and to take care of the earth. And in the midst of that, God says, I had an idea. I am going to make a helper for him. See, to be created in the image of God required that there would be both man and woman. And marriage is God's idea. He established it. It's under his authority. He designed it. And there was a purpose that he intended for it. In our interests as believers, we want to understand what God's purpose is, and we want to, to do marriage in a way that aligns with what God's intentions are. And the challenge is so many marriages find themselves out of alignment. It's like putting cars on a tire or tires on a car without aligning them. The ride's uneven. It ends up damaging the tires. See, the Bible is so interesting. If you think about it, it starts with a wedding. Adam and Eve, it ends with a wedding. Christ and the church. And you find out in Genesis 2, everything's made out of the ground except for the woman. She's made from man. And Genesis is the only creation account in the, you know, in the ancient history that is a separate creation for a woman. Well, marriage is God's idea, and it was also, marriage was to, to answer a problem that man had. It wasn't good that man should be alone. Just as the skies needed stars, and the seas needed fish, and the land needed vegetation, man needs woman. He is not good, is literally the way it says. He is not good alone. The, the problem was he was only half of what he was meant to be, half the image of God he was created to be. And he was frustrated in his design to live out, to, to do these things, to work, to keep creation, have dominion, be fruitful and multiply, because full life is found in community. And in Genesis chapter 2, not only do you have the establishment of marriage, you have the creation of community that man, man, woman, none of us were meant to be alone. Now, when you get to the New Testament, the New Testament can celebrate singleness because you have the community of the church. You have the not alone that can be found in the midst of the church. And so singleness can be celebrated. Because I know, listen, the, the reality isn't in a room this size. Not everybody's married. There are some that are single. There are some that are divorced. There are some that are widowed. There are some that are uh, 
too young to be at the age of marriage, and you're looking at that, and depending on your, your age, you look and say, I, I don't know what the prospects of that are. It was not good that man's alone. And it reminds us that in the same way, none of us is it good to be alone. None of us were designed to live apart from the community of the church. Well, in the creation of man and woman, the creation of this first marriage, it, it's answering this, this problem of aloneness. Only half of what he created to be. It, it's like this. One writer has illustrated it this way. The, um, what, what's most like half a moon is the other half of the moon. What's most like half a moon is the other half of the moon. In, in many ways, what's most like man? A woman. Usually when I talk about this, I, 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 I say this, that, that um, mothers of sons see only half a man, the half that they can mother. That's why so many of them resent a woman who wants to mother them. Man and women are in their differences. They become whole. You complete in a marriage as a, hus a husband, as a wife, not as a mother. And all of this is designed because even as Adam is there reigning CEO over creation, that wasn't enough to fulfill what he was created for. Completion of who he was is what he needed. And this helper, there was relational difference, but there was essential equality in the two. And so what happens, God makes a deep sleep, pulls part of Adam out of his side, creates the woman, and then he wakes up, and she is given to him. He receives her. Adam doesn't take a wife. He receives her. The best things are not our work. They're God's work. So what happens is, this, is, this, this desire was aroused by Adam to show him his need. And the love would be awakened through his sacrifice. God took Adam apart, put him back together again. And guys, that's a lot like what marriage will feel like. Being taken apart and put back together. Well, all that's great until you get to Genesis chapter 3. And then what happens is there begins with a failure to trust God a failure to protect one another, and ultimately a failure to fulfill the design. Marriage becomes broken. In pursuit of their own interests and desires and temptations, they turn on each other. They move away from being one flesh to against flesh. And they don't take responsibility for their failings. They point to the other for their failings. Sin entered the world. Sin entered marriage. What broke marriage? It was sin. 
Everything else is a symptom. Sex is not the problem. Communication is not the problem. Money is not the problem. In-laws aren't the problem. Those are symptoms. Which means the only thing that can heal marriage is for God to redeem it, for Christ to heal the marriage. Sex doesn't heal a marriage. You know, strategy doesn't heal it. Education doesn't heal it. Only Christ can heal a marriage. And that brings me to Ephesians 5, 22 to 23, or 33. What he's giving us a picture of, this, this submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, it is the reversal of self-pursuit. What he does is say, look, and the, the, the reality is you came into this world. He tells us in Ephesians 2, you were dead in your sins and trespasses, but God, but God brought you to life, saved you by grace and through faith in Christ. And now what it looks like is a reversal of how you came into this world. Now it is not about self-pursuit, it is other pursuit, which is really a form he's going to show us of how we pursue God is by pursuing others, giving yourself to one another, sacrificing for one another. Here's a good definition of love. Um, love is choosing to give another what they need the most when they deserve it the least at great personal cost to me. Now, with all that, let's look at this passage. Ephesians 5, verse 22. Wives... Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband's the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, we're in it, aren't we? The word submit, let me tell you what the word is. In the, in the Greek, it's a word, tasso. Here's what it means. To place yourself, and this is voluntary. It's, an, it's an, something you're choosing. To place yourself under the authority or the leadership of another. It is the recognition of an ordered structure, willingly, voluntarily placing yourself under the authority of another and their care. It speaks to the appropriate ordering within social relationships and groups to, groups to place yourself under. It also speaks to an allegiance to someone, an alignment with someone. See, what, what Paul's doing is he's saying, listen, God is not a God of chaos. He is a God of structure and order. It's for the present, uh, preservation and protection of a relationship. Jew is choosing to pay respect, pr protecting the order. has nothing to do with, nothing to do with inferiority. Submission is where equality and hierarchy exist perfectly in harmony. 
Well, we know it's not about inferiority because each one of us stands before Christ exactly the same. Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male or female. You're all one in Christ. There is absolute level ground there before the cross. It has to do with this social order. Let me give you a couple of examples. One, the example is is the Godhead, how this plays out. In the Godhead, you have the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is the Trinity, equal In essence and in nature, everything that is true about God the Father is also true about God the Son and God the Spirit. There is absolute equality and there's also difference in roles. Without any hint of inferiority. I'll give you another one. This is hypothetical, but say the President of the United States and rolls his child into a school, public school, private school. Child has a problem, ends up going to the principal's office. The principal has to summon the child's parent. The father, who is the president of the United States, steps into that office to meet with the principal of this school. And in that relationship, ideally... the president finds himself in submission to, aligning to, supporting, choosing. In that moment, not to exercise as himself as the president of the United States, but as the parent of a child being disciplined by a principal. Give you another example. Elders here at this church. As a member of this church, I submit to the elders of this church. If you're a member of this church, one of the things you talk about is you submit to the plurality of elders of the church. That they have authority and that we we, we operate in a way that we submit to them. And one of the things Fritz Hager always likes to say, and submission is not really submission until they do something you don't like. But we submit to them. But at the same time, what is, what is also clear is that if we have an elder that decides, hey, I'm going to serve in children's ministry, and goes and works over there with um, uh, Nathaniel and Erica in the, in, the, in the Bethel kids over here in the elementary place, they go in as a volunteer, they are submitting to the direction of Erica and Nathaniel as the directors. They are not there as an elder. They have there submitting as a volunteer. They have put that, it's the way it is ordered. So when Erica and Nathaniel say, hey, this is the lesson we're going to teach this weekend. This is what we want you to do with the kids. The elder doesn't go, you know what? I don't think I don't, I don't, I don't think I want to do that. You know, I'm an elder of the church. I can do anything I want. It's the fastest way to not be an elder anymore. I'll give you one more example. A truck driver 
big 18-wheeler truck driver. Driving down the road, comes to a crosswalk, and a 13-year-old after school patrol guard steps out in a yellow or orange vest and holds up a stop sign. And when the truck driver stops and yields to the 13-year-old who's there tasked with protecting, you know, the little kids that are going to walk across the he is hupo tasso to the child. See, where leadership is unclear, chaos reigns. And when the person or the party that's responsible and accountable is not leading properly, you have a problem. In marriage, this happens, and children, they feel the chaos. It creates insecurity. You know, they, they act out. And listen, God honors the, the order and we acknowledge that someone's responsibility and we follow their lead. And here's a danger. If you're sitting here this morning and there is no one in your life that you submit to, you're doing life wrong. It's one of the reasons being a part of a church, being connected to a church, being under the covering and submission and care of elders is so important. You think about it this way. Submission in a marriage works like a dance. And what a dance demands is that you've got a choreography and mutual submission to his steps and clarity of roles. And then there's practice and practice and more practice. And a great dance, what it develops is this incredible team. And there's balance and there's timing and there's rhythm and there's strength. It's a, this is a thing of beauty. And so what Paul says in verse 24 is or 23, um, uh, or the end of 22, is, is that you do this as to the Lord. And the section is wildly countercultural Because what it does is it, it, the section implies a choice. See, see, there's no penalty or consequence appealed to. In fact, we'll look in a second. There's no instruction to the husband to ensure that this is enforced. It's God's design. Paul exhorts you, and the question hangs in the air, will you do this unto the Lord? Appeal is not motivated by the husband's worthiness or qualifications. It's as unto the Lord. And then Paul compares what's imperfect to what's perfect. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as, it's a simile. Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Marriage by its design, Paul says, looks like this. A couple of things, and then we're going to move on to the husband's. Wives, you'll enjoy that promise. But the passage does a couple of things. It guards against the abuses of headship by telling husbands to love like Jesus. And it guards against the debasing of submission by telling the wives to respond the way the church does to Christ. 
in a nutshell. This biblical headship that he talks about for a husband is giving the best of all that he is for those under his care. And, and biblical submission for a wife is, is, is giving the best of all she is to the one she's voluntarily placed herself under. It's this disposition to follow the husband's lead, to yield to his leadership. It's an attitude that says, listen, I, I delight for you to take initiative in our family. I'm glad you take responsibility you lead with love. I, I don't flourish when you're passive. And I have to make sure the family works. But the attitude of a Christian, of Christian submission also said, it grieves me when you venture into sin and you want to take me with you. You know I can't do that. I have no desire to resist you. On the contrary, I flourish when I can respond creatively and joyfully to your lead. I can't follow you into sin. As much as I love to honor your leadership in our marriage, Christ is my king. And so that's his instruction to the wives. You, you want to see what marriage looks like as it was designed by God, ruined by sin, now redeemed by Christ. And then he turns to the husband. See, in verse 25, culturally in the first century, what you would expect, this is how the household codes went. There was instruction to the woman, and then the instruction to the man or the husband was that he was to ensure that the woman did what she was instructed. But that's not what Paul does at all. It's no reference to the husband's right to require submission. Here's what it says. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. And in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one's ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Striving for the highest good of one loved. That's what he's saying. Listen, what this is, is this is not affection answering affection. This isn't a contract that says, look, here's the deal. You do your part, I'll do my part. You breach your contract, I don't, I don't have to fulfill mine. It, it, it sees marriage, the, the, uh, the broken marriage, sees itself as a 50-50 situation. You do half, I do half, we both do our halves, everything's fine. That is a recipe for absolute disaster. Here is what the Bible says. It is 100 and 100. 
It is unconditional. Husbands, love your wife. And you say, well, what if she doesn't submit to me? Husbands, love your wives. Yeah, well, what if she questions everything I do? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. This word for love means being eager to understand what the needs and interests of another is. Willing to do everything in your power to supply those needs. That's the love with which husbands should love their wives. In no way is this passage an opportunity to seize submission from a wife. Quite the contrary. See, it, it leads the husband into an illustration of actually something that a husband can never attain on his own. And yet, is made accountable for. You're asked to love your wife that in, a, in and of yourself, all by yourself, you're never able to do. And yet, something you will be accountable for. This is why you've got to go all the way back to 518. This is something you do filled with the Spirit. It reminds us this is fear and trembling. That's the posture in which we lead our wives. Beware to the man who would abuse such a holy, blameless, splendid offering. Well, notice the end of verse 25, it is sacrificial. In 26, it is sanctifying. In 27, it's glorifying. To say that it is sacrificial is to remember that Christ's sacrifice wasn't forced upon him. He gave willingly his, his life. He, he, he willingly gave himself to death on a cross. In fact, Jesus says in John 10, no one takes it from me, but I lay my life down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up. And this charge I've received from my Father. Just story from history about an incident with King Cyrus. And one of his general's wives was accused of treachery. She's condemned to die, and the husband didn't know that all of that was taking place. But as soon as he heard about it, so, so he rushed into the palace, burst into the room, threw himself on the floor before the king. Oh, my Lord Cyrus, take my life instead of hers. Let me die in her place. Cyrus was noble. The, the appeal caught him off guard, you know, appealed to his sensitivities. He shouted to the court, well, love like this must not be spoiled by death. So he gave his wife back to her husband and let him go free, lets him live. Story goes, they were walking away. The husband said, did you notice how kindly the king looked at us? When he gave you the pardon, and the wife said, I have no eyes for the king. I saw only the man who was willing to die in my place. One has said a husband is, or a, a, a woman, a wife, is called to live in a voluntary, submissive, supportive way to her husband. 
The man is called to die in a sacrificially loving way for his wife. One wife, one wife rightly told her husband, Dear, I know you're willing to die for me. You've told me that many times. But, but while you're waiting to die, could you just fill in some time helping me dry the dishes? Well, verse 26, there's a sanctifying work. He's going to move in to show us it's Christ and how Christ sanctifies the church. Radiant, without stain, without wrinkle, holy, blameless. Listen, we'll never be able to accomplish for our wives what Christ accomplishes for the church, but we will be held accountable. We will stand before God. And he, I think the question will be, is she, look, is she more beautiful because of you in your time with her? In verse 27, that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. There's a glorifying aspect to this. How we love our wives. We're countable. Not to the same effect Christ has on the church, but we're accountable to the degree in which Christ sacrificed. It is the reversal of self-pursuit. It is the other, it is the pursuit of the other. And it's really a form of how we pursue God. Giving yourself to another. Sacrificing for another. One writer, marriage requires radical commitment to love our spouses as they are while longing, them, longing for them to become what they are not yet. And every marriage either moves towards enhancing another's glory or toward degrading each other. Well, Paul's going to end this exposition here. Verse 31, 32, 33. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He calls all the way back to Genesis, the original design. And then he says this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. been said, how could anything so fragile, frail, and fickle represent something so holy, faithful, and perfect? Knowing how stained and ruined it would become, and how beautiful Christ would look in the midst as a redeemer, how beautiful the gospel will look. This was the illustration from the beginning of creation that God set in place. Well, sometimes, even for believers, marriage can be disappointing. 
Sometimes the way we talk about it, I talk about it is that marriage, we, we do marriage by default. Marriage by accident rather than on purpose. Sometimes it's, it's disappointing uh, because of our expectations. We maybe saw a, um, a great marriage growing up. And in our minds we say, oh, I want to be just like that. And you spend your whole Marriage, trying to recreate something that you saw from afar, finding yourself disappointed. Maybe it's this. Maybe, maybe you didn't see a good marriage growing up, and your whole aim of marriage has been, I'm just not going to be like that. And the more you've tried for it not to be like that, the more it's ended up becoming just like that. Sometimes there's unrealistic expectations that are unmet. My spouse is going to meet all my needs. No, they won't. Sometimes it's the unrealistic expectations, particularly today, that we see on social media and we think, oh, they, oh, that marriage. Perfect pictures, perfect kids, perfect husbands, perfect vulnerability. Everything's always processed, always a silver lining. I keep telling Leslie, she needs a blog. She could title it Fat Guy in a Blue Chair. That's who I'm married to. Media, movies, fantasies, pornography, all of those create unrealistic, unrealistic expectations that'll never be met. See, here's the reality. Expectations don't make your marriage work. There's something wonderful in marriage. Something to be shared and cherished that gets buried by disappointment. And it carries around all of these unmet, unrealistic expectations. Some of them, verse 33, he reminds us, believe, man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. One, uh, the competing loyalties happened with some man or the woman. They don't ever leave home, really. Physically, they do. Emotionally, they don't. Sometimes marriages are burdened by the disappointments because marriage is... Uh, while it is the most permanent relationship of all our human relationships we have for a season, turned our marriage into something that is all about the children. Listen, children pass through a marriage, pass through a family, they pass through the marriage. Parenting is temporary. Marriaging, marriage is permanent. The greatest investment still needs to be your marriage. Sometimes it's loyalty to work or ministry. Sometimes it's just loyalty to yourself. Verse 33 reminds us, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself. Let the wife see that she respects her husband. And what this reminds us is, is that the very core of this, it has to be something that marriage is, we do this being filled by the Spirit of God. 
It's something that has to be done and bathed in grace. And that law, law doesn't work in a marriage. Law looks like this when we seek to change each other through demands, ultimatums. Or we seek to change each other through guilt. Or, or underneath the reality is we seek to change each other not for the good of the other person, but for our own benefit. Listen, I'll tell you, if there's any place that I am qualified to speak, it's right here. I've said on several occasions there was a season of our marriage that I almost ruined it by imposing the law. I thought if, if listen, you know, everything would be fine if she just stopped doing that. Or if she just started, or if, I mean, I had this whole list that my marriage would be perfect if, and somehow, coincidentally, all the change was Leslie's. Remember, we're, our last year in seminary, we were sitting at Atlanta Bread Company across the table from each other. Both of us looking at each other, thinking this isn't, if we do not get some help, this is not going to work. So we decided that morning we needed to go to counseling. And this was a big deal for me because Leslie and I both had degrees in marriage and family therapy. I had worked as a marriage and family therapist. But I relented. We decided. We picked a, a counselor. We got a referral from our pastor. We went to the counselor, Steve Johnson, most gifted counselor I've ever sat in front of, sat there. And, I, and no lie, no lie to my shame, I'll tell you what I did. Because I, I didn't understand. I began to give him my credentials. Steve, so nice to meet you. I'm, you know, gosh, we really were colleagues, if you want to call it that. I mean, I have a degree, marriage and family, master's degree, marriage and family therapy. The 60-hour the one, not the 45-hour one. Been in private practice. I'm in my last year at the Dallas Theological Seminary. And then I say something like, and I just want you to know, any help you need with Leslie, I'm here. Right? Well, the end of the story is always the same. We spent the next eight months talking about me, as it turns out. And I'm thankful for that. Let me just challenge you. If you're sitting here this morning and you think, man, if I could just wave a magic wand, all these things about my spouse would change. That's a great indicator that it probably has something significant to do with you. <clears throat> Lean into this. Let God's Spirit through God's Word have this transforming effect on your heart this morning? It's ultimately not about the 
happiness of the husband or the wife. It's about what you are together. Living, working out according to God's design, it reflects the designer, and I promise it brings you the maximum joy you will know in this life. Marriage lived out, worked out, according to the design, maximizes joy, happiness, holiness in your marriage and your Christian life. And at the same time, you need more than marriage. Marriage isn't the answer to the eternal longing and the desire we feel. If you seek to make marriage the answer to the eternal ache and longing you have, you will, you will elevate marriage to a place that's not meant to be elevated. You have a longing, you have a desire, you have an eternal ache, and the truth is that's not satisfied in this life. It is an eternal desire that cannot be satisfied with anything temporary. A desire so great and so deep and so powerful, only eternity can satisfy it. And only eternity begins for you with your faith in Christ. Let him heal you. Let him heal your marriage. And if you need help, ask somebody for it. Seek some counsel. Seek some guidance. It's worth it because of God's design. If you would, would you bow with me? Let's pray.